You know what this is? A very small room no. with a lot of equipment in it. No, it's a it's a bonus episode. <laughs> what? Wait a minute. There were eight episodes. You said eight. You're now putting yes. nine on it? No, it's going to be the first season with eight episodes, but this is going to be a bonus. This is episode B, not episode nine. You know how I want to call it? I don't. What I learned trying to become a dog trainer. Ooh. Did you know that I tried to become a dog trainer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did because I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you have noticed. I guess you have noticed when I was sitting in, in in our bedroom with my laptop every weekend for half a year, almost every weekend for half a year, because that was my course. It was not full time since we do have full time jobs, so I couldn't just do full time course. So I did the weekend course, and that happened in 2021. Started in March. Yes. So you you took a six month course in German which was bold and very intensive. The course itself is meant to prepare you for the examination, which Germany requires if you want to be a dog trainer, because you need to take an exam in the veterinary ministry. So the course is tailored to, to that program. So just for people who are not in Germany, they like you to be official and licensed in and educated for everything that you want to do professionally. Like It's hard to convince someone to give you a job if you didn't get a degree in that thing, although I'm an exception. IT is an exception too, yeah. which is my day job. So anyways, I guess, well, one of the main reasons was because we, we got a dog and we had that dog for almost a year. No, sorry, for less, for almost half a year when I started the course. And, you know, there's endless things to learn about dogs. And even if we did a ton of research preparing for the podcast and then during the course of the podcast, talking with all experts and trainers and, and friends who had dogs for many more years than we did, I still felt that there's many pieces missing. <laughs> and I kind of had an idea that maybe I could change my profession again, which I tend to do. <laughs> once. Once. <laughs> all right. Yeah, true once. But anyways, I thought maybe... I still think that maybe I am not tailored for computer job <laughs> all day long. <laughs> This is not a secret. <laughs> it's not really a secret. I don't think that anybody is because that's kind of in our nature that we were not meant to be sitting eight hours a day and stare at a screen or multiple screens as we do now. I think that's another podcast. Anyways, yeah, that, we're digressing. The course was, I guess, many things which I did expect it to be, but it was also many things which I never thought that it would be. What I learned, I could put it like in two boxes since we do like boxes. So one section would be maybe what I learned about dogs, because in the end, my conclusion was that the course was more how to be a good dog parent, how to own a dog in a responsible way and what you need to know about dogs mm -hmm. more than it was about how you train dogs or especially how you train people to train dogs because that that would be my first and the main point dog training is people training yeah so that's funny because the stated purpose of that course was how to be a dog trainer since you've already made the point that dog training is people training did they really address that fact in the course yes and no <laughs> Yes, we did address that. And well, in general, I guess my impression was there was a lot of theory, but there was not enough practice. And that's a common problem with any kind of education, in, in my opinion. So we did have mainly theory for a few months. And then in the end, we had like a month where we did hands-on approach, where we went and trained each other's dogs or friends' dogs with the supervision of, of uh, dog trainers in that school. But obviously, it wasn't enough. And we spoke about how you coach people, how you at least should be approaching people. But 
yeah, we didn't have enough opportunities to to try out various situations with various people, which I noticed, of course, immediately. Everybody noticed it immediately. And what I did or what I tried to do was look for those opportunities and how I looked for them was just posting on Facebook in the expats group, expats in Berlin, <laughs> and telling people, hey, here is me trying to become a dog trainer. Do you maybe have dogs? And do you maybe have problems with those dogs? I could try to coach you with the limited, but still increasing knowledge in the field. You know, I did it, of course, for free, just just in a, as an opportunity to, to sharpen my skills. It was a good plan. It was a good plan and I did have fun and some people were really eager to learn, some were less eager to learn, but that just kind of strengthened my conclusion that you really need to be a very easygoing communicator. You have to be very flexible and keen on people, keen on talking to people, keen on observing, and you really need those sharp observational skills just to spot the subtleties in people's reactions and people's behaviors. So would it would it be fair to say that if you're one of those kind of people that at the end of the day prefers the company of dogs to people, you're maybe not going to be an ideal dog trainer? Yes. Though... It makes me think now about our favorite dog trainer who helps with our dog. I cannot say that she is very chatty or that she's eager to, you know, befriend you instantly. But she's a tremendous listener and she asks all the right questions. Exactly. So the aforementioned sharp observational skills, that is crucial. But of course, you have to to be eager to be around people. And and I think some of us who were in that in that group in that course came to that conclusion that I do love dogs, but I don't really want to train people how to train dogs. And I know that some went into dog sitting profession or into dog walking profession. Some, you know, like me are more keen on maybe dog research and just learning more about dog behavior and then applying that knowledge on my own dogs or, you know, family's dogs, friends' dogs, just casually giving advice where I find it appropriate or where they actually ask for help. Dog sports is another great opportunity to be around many dogs yeah. and, and, you know, be in, in good communities. Or, or, you know, if you're really crazy, maybe go into breeding because that's another whole different section. You can do it really well and it takes a lot of knowledge and experience to, to breed dogs healthily and to actually take good care of them. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we just came back from a long vacation. We took uh, know, two and a half, three weeks time in the States in addition to other travel and that was Justina's first trip to the States and also first time meeting my family, even though she chatted with them on online calls. And they all have dogs. My sister has, and her husband have three. My brother and his wife have two. My parents have three. Sometimes they have four. Right now they have three. <laughs> Only. And there are various degrees. Yeah, I mean, different approaches to training from laissez-faire <laughs> or non-existent, not to mention any names, to really really, really programmed, really hard work, really specific kinds of training. I was just thinking that it was hard to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> Having learned all that I learned from you, everything that you've learned, I could see you struggling also. It's well-intended advice at the end of the day, and, and it's probably better to wait for someone to ask you. I mean, they all know that Justine is now technically trained as a dog trainer and has had some experience, but they also know that she's, you know, a dog nut, like she's... Softy. <laughs> well, no, I was going to say, like, as we'll probably demonstrate in this episode, your views, oh, some people would view as maybe not extreme, but impractical for them. And I guess that's one of the challenges. I'm going to sort of play devil's advocate today because maybe I'm more... Is that is that really 
practical, you know, the balance between our quality of life and the dog's quality of life is something I think about a lot. Mm. Any, I've, 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 anyway, I've kind of meandered there, but it was, it's tricky no. to give advice, uh, even when you know what you're talking about, because as you said, dog training is people training and just no matter how good the advice is, it doesn't necessarily mean someone's going to implement it because implementing changes in dog behavior, just like implementing changes in a child's behavior takes time. It just, it's not a snap of the finger. It takes consistency in your part. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's not instant, uh, but you stepped into the right territory, I would say into my second point kind of, because yes, I do have a list and I narrowed it down as much as I could. But <laughs> my, I guess my other point is there's no formulas in training, especially formulas which guarantee success for you. There are so many approaches. There are many methods. There are many tricks which can almost be called universal. You can teach dogs certain things. You know, my favorite one is just lower the treat in between the dog's front paws if you want to start teaching him to lie down because, of course, the inclination is to follow the treat downwards. And since it's so inconvenient when it's in between the front paws, that eventually the dog kind of lays down. Mm -hmm. So... Of course, there are these like mechanical tricks, mechanical techniques, which can work for every dog. But in essence, every dog is different. They have personalities, they have preferences, they have moods, just like we do. So you cannot come into, into a family who wants to train a dog and say, this is my plan, this is what you're going to do. Some trainers do that. Some trainers think that mm. their technique is the best technique and it's going to work for everybody. First of all, that's like giant two giant schools and two giant approaches, which is with punishment or without punishment. And then each of those has versions and has, you know, varying levels of, of nuthead degree, as I could call <laughs> Extremist. it. <laughs> Pretty much. Positive you know. versus negative reinforcement or vice versa. Basically, yeah. I mean, there are subtleties and theoretically you may not be able to call it just as simply as positive or negative, but basically what I always say is like with punishment or without punishment. Well, there's a difference. I mean, I guess an example comes to mind. There's a difference between withholding a treat until the dog does something you want versus screaming at the dog or, God forbid, hitting the dog or, you know, traumatizing them. Those are both, could say, negative reinforcement, There's a, but there's a very big difference. I mean, dogs are quite sensitive just to tone of voice and your body language. They know when you're not pleased. <laughs> you don't need to traumatize them to make your point. You're just teaching them to fear you, really. I don't know why you're like peeking into my list or is it just flowing naturally now? <laughs> I wasn't peeking at your list, actually. Because <laughs> that's the next I'm, one, I'm next like that annoying thing. student who asks those questions and the teacher's like, yeah, I was just about to get to that point. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Pretty much. I see that not many things changed since you were at school. I did not read the From what I heard from your mom. <laughs> <laughs> Body language. I mean, that, that's the key. I, I genuinely think that's a key and it flows both ways. You need to be hyper aware of your own body language because what you do is crucial. It's really crucial. We don't understand and it's so hard to implement. But equally, you need to learn as much as possible about the dogs, generally dogs, animals, body language. Many things which we take for granted are, are not what we interpret them to be. The, you know, the simplest example wagging of a tail. It does not always mean that it's good. No. You need to see how that tail is being wagged. If it's super stiff, if you see that the whole body of your dog is tense, and especially if there's another dog approaching, that most likely means that your dog is hyper alert and does not want that interaction to continue. So you need to get them out of that situation instead of, oh, my dog's wagging the tail. Let's go greet that dog, especially on leash, which you should not do. You should not interact on leashes. The dog is so limited in those situations that they cannot express themselves as they would off-leash. 
Nor can they flee. Nor can they flee. They can't exactly. Move around freely. Yeah. Exactly. So it's already tense. Yeah, that that tail wagging thing was, I think, the first thing that was really memorable that I remember learning from you because I just got, you know, what most kids get, and we had dogs and everything. It's like, oh, waggy waggy tail, happy dog, and I was infamous for trying to pet every dog because I was a dog nut as a kid. That didn't end well. So, <laughs> do you re- do you remember how you would approach a dog as a kid? Oh, of course, stick your hand out. You know, I was told, like, stick your hand out so the dog can smell it. And, you know, walk right up to the dog and give him a friendly look. It's like, yes, and you can describe <laughs> the, the, in dog language what those I mean, things actually mean. <laughs> it's not the worst that you could have done. I see kids coming to the dog and trying to hug him. Yes. You know, really I love dangerous. you. I'm going to kiss your face right now with my little face in front of your giant jaws. Well, we know how those situations might end. So sticking the hand out is not the worst, but it's, of course, also not recommended. Basically, the only advice I can, I can give, and I try to do myself, let the dog come to you. If you will be interesting enough for him, he will come and sniff you. And once he is next to you and is showing that interest, then you can start maybe slowly move towards his chest and try to scratch the chest because they usually like it. But Don't just do pat, pat, pat on the head like many of our neighbors do, <laughs> even, even if our dog is friendly. But I always fringe if I don't manage to catch that in time and they just approach her like this. That can be super dangerous. If you could summarize all of the challenges of dog training being people training, it's the well-known human tendency to only see the world as if everything was human and, and that we could expect human rational behavior and human thinking out of other creatures. Anthropomorphization, I think, I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, in a nutshell. We really, really do that with dogs. We want them to be our little furry kids and perfectly behaved and, you know, cuddle when we want to cuddle and all that stuff. And you've got to learn to treat a dog as a dog and understand what makes a dog happy and what makes a dog uncomfortable and read dog body language. And then the other part when you're training a dog is, like, is it fair to say that you're always communicating or is that depend a lot on the dog's attention because if they're running around sniffing or something, they're you're going to be trying to communicate, but they're not focused on you. No, you're right. You're definitely right. We are always communicating because even as you say, they may be sniffing something, but they have other senses too. And especially if our dog is on the leash, it, he will react to the tension. If you're trying, you know, mm. to slightly pull him away, he will hear your voice if you're trying to say something to him too. So there's constant mutual communication going on. It's not only us trying to tell something, but it's always our dog trying to tell something as well. You know, the classic one, there's another dog coming up front and and, and our dog does something. So those situations are very, very important to interpret, right? If, you know, if, if your dog just stops and gets all tensed up, You shouldn't wait for that other dog to approach because this tensing up already indicates that the dog may not want to interact with that dog. The best would be just to try and go in a loop around that other dog. Mm. Just go to the side and avoid that contact. Which is what dogs do if, if they're exactly. a lot on their own. They always yeah. loop into yeah. each other unless they're being aggressive. If yeah. they come straight at a dog and dog language means you're basically aggressive. Aggressive or you are not taught this. Like dogs mm. also learn from each other. So you can spot that many young puppies or adolescent dogs, they just run towards each other straight face to face and then they get scolded by older dogs because it's like, no, no, this is not the protocol. If you want to greet me, we have to 
circle a little bit around each other, go more towards each other's butts, sniff, and then you can slowly come maybe through the sides, sniff the sides, sniff underneath the chest, and sniff, you know, the, the, the ears, the, the neck area. But they never really go and sniff face to face. That is super rude. So try to avoid that. Try to bring them in the situations where they can circle a little bit around each other if you really want to get closer to, to another dog. But generally, avoid that on leash. It's not really useful. It's, it doesn't give anything for the dog. I guess I had one question about this idea about lack of training formulas or I guess the wrongheadedness of just trying to approach dog training with a fixed formula that can apply. How much of that depends on the breed? Because obviously training a, I don't know, a, let's think, um, a Ridgeback, Rhodesian Ridgeback, which is a very, has a very specific set of characteristics and it's a quite large dog. Here in Germany, they seem even bigger to me, but it could just be I hadn't noticed them since I was smaller in the States mm-hmm. versus, I don't know, Chihuahua would be an extreme example, but, you know, let's say a Border Collie or something like that. How much of that is sort of breed dependent or are there sort of traits you can say, okay, well, I'm probably going to be looking for this and this and this if it's this kind of dog. So that's a giant topic. <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, I, I can instantly see some points there. You took a Ridgeback, right? And and the Border Collie. So I wouldn't maybe put them as opposites, but I would, sure, look into the breed. What traits does the breed bring or can bring? But I would even pay more attention to the energy level of the dog because I don't want to say it's a rule, but an effective strategy, at least to start with, is if you have a super energetic dog and you want to train him, you have to be very calm because every little movement that you make can be a trigger for that dog. During our training classes, I had to handle a Ridgeback once. It was my trainer's Ridgeback. And she was young dog, first of all. She was 10 or 11 months old. So full of energy just as a young dog, but also full of energy as a Ridgeback. And she was big. She was big and, you know, even scary for some people. And the only thing which worked was for me to maintain my calmness as much as possible. Not move when I don't need to move. Don't look her directly in the eye because she already interpreted that as a trigger. So if you have a super energetic dog, start very slow, start very calmly and don't rush. Don't try to be, you know, boom, boom, boom. I want to do this. I want you to do that. And now turn around, start with very simple basics. First, teach her how to be calm and only then you know, level up in energy field. But on the opposite then, with a super slow dog who is super, you know, oh, I don't want to do anything, I'm not interested, and I generally just move slowly. Could be small dog, could be a big dog as well. You need to put much more energy into that, especially if the dog is older. I'm not saying, you know, that you should push the boundaries of a 15-year-old dog and <laughs> make him run around. But no, it's just if the dog is a bit more lazy, you need to show him that you want action, that you want him to do these things. So energy is very important. Sometimes it's even more important than the breed. But sure, breeds bring certain traits, breeds bring certain backgrounds, even groups of breeds. They, well, of course, the hunting dogs, like our dog is a mix of a hunting dog. And we see those characteristics coming in and out always, every day. There's a bird, there's a fox, there's a squirrel, there's a big cargo bike, which she hates. She just runs into it instantly, no matter how much we train, because that's an impulse. And those impulses are the hardest to work with. So the awareness of what comes, what baggage comes with the breed of your dog or breeds, mixes, you know, you need to, to take 
take all of that into consideration. That That's what I mean by saying that each dog is individual and that individuality comes, of course, from his breed, from his genetics, from, from his background. Was it a street dog again, like our dog, mm. who tries to pick everything <laughs> off the streets, every little crumb, no matter how well she's fed? And then, you know, what is the family situation? What traumas maybe have happened recently Again, it's like a giant set of, of topics. I'm all, you know, mixing them all together here. But classic example is it's a dog of a couple and then the couple breaks up and only one of them takes the dog with. And that dog is in so much stress, not only because he is in stress by not having that other person around anymore, but the partner is in stress. They mirror, they mirror our emotions insanely. So all these things, they, they are always there. And if you have a problem, which, you know, again, is my next point, kind of. If you have any behavior, good or bad, there is always a reason for that behavior. Mm. It's not coming from nowhere. Your dog is not, a, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not stubborn. <laughs> it's not just evil or taking revenge on you for whatever reason. There's a reason. There's a, there's a reason for that behavior. So you have to postpone that impulsive reaction if the dog does something that you don't want him to do. And you need to think, what is that reason? Where can I trace it? And then how can I manage it? How can I avoid it? How can I untrain it if it's a trained behavior? But here, the crucial thing is to start with health because many unwanted behaviors are related to health issues. It could be pain. It could be as simple as some you know, pinprick in the paw if he had interaction with a hedgehog recently, for example. <laughs> or, you know, it can be any other discomfort in the body. Maybe the harness is too tight. Maybe the collar is too tight. Maybe it's, it just rubs in a bad way or a dog has skin allergy to that specific polyester or whatever. Or, you know, it could be hormonal issues, disbalance. So checking with the vet is the first thing. And only when you're sure that there's no health issues, you can look into other areas. So I, let me try and rephrase something I think I'm hearing, and then you can correct me if I'm wrong. The key to training dogs is even if you've got a lot of experience and you've seen repeated traits by breed, you still have to meet each dog as an individual and really observe them. Because the danger of experience on one hand is that if it turns into expectations that you can't set aside and just pay attention to what's really going on, then you're sort of blinded by experience rather than enlightened by experience. Do you know what I'm getting at? It's a, it, it can become a filter. It's a tricky thing. So you, you need to deal with each dog as an individual. Is that right? It's, it's completely right. Think, you know, as a filmmaker, if you were to approach every actor that you meet in the same way, yeah. what would be the result? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key point. Everybody's an individual. It's, it's just like us. We cannot meet every person with the same expectation. So I guess the, the upside of experience maybe is if you can continue to stay open to what's happening right now with this dog, experience may make you faster to read what's happening and to pick up on that there's a problem. But then you also your experience would teach you, you need to investigate and figure out, is there a cause that can be addressed? Is there a physical cause? What's the role of the owner's body language, the owner's unwitting communication, that sort of thing? Yeah, and also it will help you exclude things. The more you know, the more you can exclude if it does not match the specific dog. But definitely body language, again, and, you know, we can talk and talk about it, and I think we will maybe in, in the next episodes. But one thing is also super important. To know your dog's body language 
to know what regular behavior patterns he has, how he eats, how he walks around, just to spot the irregularities when your dog is getting sick, when it's feeling discomfort. Because if you won't pick up on these things, how will you know that there's an issue? Of course, there are obvious things like dog starts to vomit, cough, and so on, stops eating, but that's kind of extreme. Yeah, but for example, if the dog just starts slightly limping, you may think, eh, maybe she just stretched her leg too much or, or jumped badly, but it could indicate a hip problem. There's many more, you know, subtle signs or, you know, oh, another one, panting. Panting can mean at least five different things. <laughs> well, I, I just sh sh shot a random number now, but there's just normal heat panting. And you know, how much panting is normal panting is also a question. How to cool your dog. Every item opens up so many doors, but then there's a very important stress panting. And there's also pain panting when the dog is in pain and just does not know what else to do, kind of tries to... To, to get down to all the behaviors that they know. So it, it has to be viewed in, in the context and all the circumstances that surround the dog. I guess if we humans could use our intelligence to try and ask ourselves, almost like little investigators, what has happened recently that might be the cause of this behavior rather than just treating it as why you're trying to annoy me? <laughs> yeah. Or why are you being a bad dog? Why aren't you just doing what I would like you to do? then we'd have a lot better results. Yeah, and, and that's also very important because dogs by default know very little about humans when you think about it, especially if it's a fresh dog. It's coming straight from a litter where he had only his mom, his litter mates, and one, two, you know, maybe more people if there were more people in the family. But that contact was very limited usually. And then we expect them to know what we, these new people who own him now, want from him to always match these expectations to basically read our minds because most of the time we don't communicate what we want from them and dogs don't contemplate you know what's good what's bad and what I'm supposed to do what I'm not supposed to do they just behave in the way that they're either bred for which is their natural inclination or they just go straightforwardly to satisfy their needs and they will <laughs> try to satisfy their needs and whatever whatever you know means is is available for them Right, they're they're going to continue to be a dog. They're not going to be like, oh, I've got an owner now. Now I need to be a little a little human that's well behaved. Exactly, and then again, if if those desired behaviors of yours are going directly against the dog's impulses, such as if you you know see a squirrel and I want you to sit perfectly and look at me and you know ignore it completely, well, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you turn off your DNA? Because that's really inconvenient. Yeah, and I said that before, that you have to work with your own impulses. And punishing is very often our impulse, you know, pulling away and, and chewing and scolding. These are all the things which build fear in the dog. They make him avoid you instead of learning something from you. And we spoke about this, I think, many times, that it's trust and not fear, which has to be the basis for any relationship. And it's so important with your animals because they remember. They may not store their memories in the same way that, that we do, you know, classify it and this is blah, blah, blah. But they will just write it down in their neural structures in their system and they will start behaving automatically in that way, that they will avoid you, they will try to do the things that they want to do when you don't see, but they will not stop doing that. And here I remember... One of my favorite dog trainers, her name is Kathy Sedeo, and she has a wonderful book about positive reinforcement. And I, I would even say beyond positive reinforcement. Her main point is 
that you need to teach your dog all the behaviors that you want him to do, all these good behaviors, and give him all these alternatives for for the actions that that you you deem you know un, unjustifiable and undesirable. <laughs> yeah, undesirable. And it's not any you know giant training program. It's it's very simple. If you see that your dog does something right, walks on a loose leash next to you, doesn't react at a bike when it passes by, greets another dog gently, stands calm when the baby is around him. Everything, everything which we take for granted as, oh, this is a good dog. But you need to show your dog that this is a good behavior. So when you see him doing that, just give him a treat. Praise him if your dog likes praise. You engage him into play if that's that's how you can reward him. And again, you know, reward is so important. Basically, you need to make a list of things that your dog likes, that your dog loves. And it can be as simple as my dog likes to dig. So how do I give him that opportunity to dig? My dog likes to chase. Sure, maybe let's not chase the cat, but <laughs> maybe we can chase a toy on a string. And you really need to, to write down all these simplest things. Maybe he just likes to dig in a blanket, search for a hidden toy. Or they like, they like to, I mean, they're hunters, right? So like our dog, we've discovered, loves cardboard and paper bags. So whenever we get groceries... We let her destroy the paper bags. Whenever we get packages, we let her destroy the cardboard boxes. She has an absolute blast. It's completely therapeutic. The mess that it makes is nothing because the dog is so much happier. Exactly. You know, it takes 30 seconds to throw it away when she's good and done. Yeah, and there's a, a more general point there that the more good behaviors dog knows the more options he has to resort to in new situations. Oh, maybe I've seen only bikes, but then I hear a motorcycle coming and it's like, huh, maybe I can generalize that. And maybe that motorcycle is similar to a, to a bike, which I just watch and let him pass calmly. So you will have many more opportunities. You, you'll give your dog many more opportunities to do things that you want instead of just saying, oh, no, I don't like you doing that. I don't like you doing that. But the dog is like, left. Uh, what am I supposed that's, to do here? That's really interesting. And, and instead of only reacting when the dog does something wrong, but then you still haven't taught them what they're supposed to do, just what they're not supposed to do, and they don't really get that concept. They just, they, they just fear you. You actually in trying to instill a vocabulary so they have these associations with, oh, if I sit calmly and let the bike go by or whatever, I'll get a treat. And even yeah. if you don't continue to give them the treat every time, or maybe you should, I don't know, they still have that neural connection. So you're literally like building their vocabulary of good behavior. Yeah, eventually, of course. No, that's another topic. It's how you positively reinforce and train, but eventually you can fade out. It's called fading out the treats. You give uh -huh. them at, at random, you know, every fifth time the bike passes, but not, not like every fifth time, but like every second, fifth, and you mix it up. And eventually, you know, you can just switch to a verbal praise or just padding right, or a certain scratch that your dog likes more. They're super sensitive to tone of voice and, you know, they yeah. all have places they like to be scratched. and yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought up that fade out concept and I wasn't totally clear on that because it's like, well, at what point do you stop giving him a treat every time? It's, it's, it's again, the individuality of, of a dog. You may have dogs with whom you will need to keep giving those treats. Mm. The dogs who are super hard to train, the dogs who have super strong impulses, the dogs who are from the street, who you adopt maybe when they're five years old and, you know, there's all that baggage of the past. So mm. that can be situations, you know. Even even our trainer was very, very open about it. Yes, your dog has super strong hunting instinct and 
she will still react. Maybe that reaction will be just a teeny tiniest jerk in the direction instead of full jump and lunge like, like she does now. But it's like human behavior. There are some things that you cannot erase. Well, she did. I, I just have to praise our dog trainer because, uh, number one, she was realistic and say, basically, you're not going to make this hunting dog that was bred over generations to react this way not obey her DNA. But what she did teach us to do is simply redirect it. So when she jumps, she lunges at something, we get her attention and redirect it uh, in the opposite direction, basically, with waving treats and actually just toss a treat in the ground so her actual physical impulse is moving away from the thing that's obsessing her at the moment. And that has been amazing. Yeah, and we have not been consistent. Yeah, it's just a great example of positive reinforcement rather than just being annoyed that the, your dog is the way it is, which is not convenient for you. I would not have thought to do what she did. Like she just, the first time we went on a walk with her, she was just almost silent and was so attentive to what was going on. And then the <laughs> it was actually hilarious because Lucy, our dog, I joked later, gave the best audition. She did everything wrong. She did all of the things for which we had called the dog trainer to help us. And she was so on top of it. She had strategy immediately and it was it was quite amazing actually it's, it's actually great that you bring it up because I, i'm thinking now you know i went through this dog trainer course i saw the people who come into the field who want to who think that they want to be dog trainers and do your research when you are looking for a dog trainer don't go just with general recommendation don't go with google reviews don't go with oh it worked for my dog your friend's advice family's advice whatever we experimented we had a few dog trainers and we we only liked this one and you know we're i would say you know reasonable people it's not that we expect magic we know that we will need to work with our dog but it's it's crazy, you know, when I think about it, that I came to other people now saying, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a dog trainer. I want to train your dog. I'm embarrassed about that now. It, it takes so much experience to learn how to become an actually good dog trainer. Don't expect to learn how to train dogs within half a year. It's going to take you years and years and years of practice, of dealing with various dogs, dealing with various people. So I'm not saying only go for experienced dog trainer. Sure, you may just not be able to afford an experienced dog trainer and you have to start somewhere, but just be very observant yourself of that dog trainer. Ask questions. Ask, why am I supposed to do this? Is this really best for my dog? You know, how did you come up with this strategy? How it's, is it something that you do with all the dogs? Of course, they may not tell you, but at least when you'll show that you are informed as well, the trainer may treat you differently. Yeah. Yeah. Our first experience, we ended up being with this trainer for an hour and a half and shelling out 150 bucks and he did absolutely nothing. He, he demonstrated how committed he was to not acknowledging the dog's presence. Literally wouldn't say hello and he's saying how this was such a good thing for him to do. I still don't know what the heck he, his point was. Yeah, he, he, just, he was filling in the form which usually dog trainers sent out in advance for you to fill in about our dog, about our behavior with the dog, and so on. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> they're, 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 the thing is... Trainers are just humans, you know, they range. Yeah, yeah, and you, you need to be picky. So let me ask you something. After all your experience, is there any one... If you had to pick a single piece of advice for people who are thinking about getting a dog, what would it be? I know this. <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, but I actually said that to my colleague who is thinking about getting a dog last week. Pick mm. a dog which would fit into your lifestyle most seamlessly. Mm. To elaborate on that, 
you know, if you are super outdoorsy, maybe you shouldn't get a couch potato dog who will be suffering whenever you'll need to take him outdoors with you hiking. Match that level of energy, which is generally in your family, with the potential dog. And there's, of course, a huge debate, breed versus non-breed, adopt, not adopt, but that's not for this episode. So that presupposes that people are going to do their homework yes. about, well, this is a tricky thing. So with purebred dogs, the traits are maybe more consistent, but I'm a big believer in not getting purebred dogs. And so then you kind of have to evaluate individual dogs. It's a lottery in any case, because even if you're getting a, a purebred dog with very specific bloodline, with very specific traits you're expecting, there can be retrievers who do not want to go in water. Yeah. And it's the same, you know, you may want to adopt the shelter dog like we did. And then we expected that, oh, the dogs may be more grateful for people. They will appreciate having a good lifestyle. But again, that was just us thinking like humans do. Dogs are dogs and they will not be thinking things. They will be doing things. And <laughs> you need to prepare yourself for that. Since we're on this topic, a, re a related question, how do you feel? Because I've heard people say, I want a puppy. I want to be the only trainer. I want to know the dog's background. Um... So I can kind of control that. And that's why I don't want to rescue a dog. It's not that I care about breeds. It's I don't want a dog who's already been alive for a year or two. And I don't know what kind of experiences they've had. I don't know how to train for that. They could have been traumatized, et cetera. You need to know why you want a certain kind of dog, age-wise or, you know, breed-wise. You can have your arguments because you really th thought about it, not because you want a young cute dog because young cute dog is you know more more appealing to you you need to know what that specific group of dogs will bring into your life and be ready for that let's say chaos if it's a puppy there will be chaos there will be chaos and <laughs> you may not want at first an elderly dog because it's like oh you know they're i don't know where they are coming from but that elderly dog may be the biggest sweetheart you've ever met and maybe the best companion for you for you know maybe less years than you would like to but think about what what a great life you could be giving to that dog who may not have had that good life previously. I see arguments, of course, in both sides. But again, you just have to pick the right dog at the right time. And there's no guarantees, even if no. it is a purebred dog and other, other litters have produced champions or traits that you wanted. There's no guarantee your dog is going to be the same. My, my brother has had uh, that experience quite painfully in that he has had two dogs from the same breeder, I think. They got Anya, and after, I think, some years, they, they realized that she has some little defect. Not a defect, but, like, there's some little disease in her. I don't remember what was that exactly. I mean, it's not really visible. And because of that issue, because the breeder guaranteed that the dog is healthy from a good line and so on, they gifted them Leo. <laughs> <laughs> I think they overpaid. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love Leo, but, yeah, their second dog is... Uh, well, he's he's got to screw loose mentally. I mean, he's really, really, really tough to train. Yeah. Yeah. They have issues, but they're really good in dealing with them and working amazing, on them. Actually, amazing commitment to, to working with the dog. Yeah. Many people would have given up on that dog many times. I would say most. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so there are no guarantees anyway. Yeah. But it's interesting now. Um, it makes me think about all the diseases that dogs bring. And that was definitely a big point in our course, especially with purebred dogs. 
many, many purebred dogs have many diseases and some diseases are more prone in, in certain breeds. The biggest example that was that was repeated many times for us was uh, King Charles Spaniels. I think every fifth or sixth Spaniel has the disease called syringomyelia, which is a certain con brain condition. It's basically the skull is too small for the dog's brain. The skull is pressing onto the brain tissue so much that it causes excruciating pain for the dog and they start twitching, they start having seizures. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's really horrible to see. And many breeders, I mean, you cannot predict on which puppy it may manifest and it may manifest after a few years when they are alive, you know, when the skull forms fully and when the brain forms fully. So there's no chance of spotting which puppy will have that. Same, you know, all the brachycephalic dogs, the dogs with super short snouts, they have so many issues. In winter, they get cold air too quickly and that causes discomfort. In summer, obviously, they just cannot breathe enough. Breathe enough. They always experience that shortness of breath. So you're talking pugs, boxers, French bulldogs, bulldogs yeah. even Rottweilers. And it, I, love their, I love their personalities, but yeah, I would never get one. I just can't support that. That's the reason why they actually have those diseases, because people want them and then overbreeding happens and you don't comply with proper health standards. So you just try to produce as many dogs as you can. Of course, we can go into the puppy mills and, you know, all that glory. My parents ran into that with Dalmatians. My dad got obsessed with Dalmatians and, yeah, a lot of health problems from overbreeding. Same thing with all the most popular breeds. Yeah. Labradors, Golden Retrievers. Yeah, like boxers have epilepsy. Ridgebacks. Ridgebacks are such beautiful dogs and, you know, their whole name depends on that ridge. But what that ridge is, is just basically a, a bad spine. It's, it's In some puppies, it's a really horrible spine condition where that canal is open, the spine canal is open, and it's only the skin which is protecting that open back, and you can get so many diseases, so many infections through it. It's insane when you think about it. Many breeders now start selling only ridgebacks without the ridge, because that means that they have a healthy back. Mm. If you follow the standards of breeding, the puppies who don't have that ridge should be culled, and they used to be. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. It makes me can't, angry. Can't charge us higher price or it cuts into your profits, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Anyway, that's the whole breeding business is uh, problematic. I'd say. Yeah. Another topic. Again, still in the medical area, what, I, what we both learned actually was that people should not rush with spaying and neutering their dogs because there are many potential health risks. Again, giant topic, but what we personally experienced is our dog was spayed before we got her. Because when we got her, she was around one year old. And in her health pass, it says that she was spayed around 11 months old. And that most likely was too early because she developed this bladder condition that her bladder muscles are not contracting enough and she sometimes leaks in her sleep. And now she takes medicine and it's all good, but we are now tied to giving her pills every day. That happens to many spayed female dogs when they are spayed too early. Basically, you need to wait out at least one natural cycle, and you should spay only that only after it. And with male dogs, there's another issue. Also with female dogs, it can happen, but it occurs more often with male dogs. If you neuter them too early, they get kind of stuck in that mental teenage years mm. and think about how would you like your kids to be stuck in teenage years? Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's tragic because let's say in the first case, you end up with a dog who is going to pee on the floor sometimes. 
not even because they have a full bladder, but they can't control it. And a lot of people would just say, nope, I'm not, I'm not going to have that dog, not even finding out that you can simply give them estrogen pills and fix the problem. Or in the second case, it's like, well, this dog is badly behaved. It's untreatable yeah. and they get rid of it too. They give it up. So Yeah. And it's, you know, it's discomfort for, for the dog itself because he never reaches that full maturity as an adult dog. So he behaves awkwardly. You know, he approaches other dogs in, in all the wrong ways and he will never have that natural and qualitative social bonding too. Think about that. Do your research again. <laughs> Don't spay or neuter just because you think it's right. There are ways to control the impulses during certain periods of time, and you may not even need to do that. Quick question, because we were talking about it earlier today. My memory growing up in the United States was that you would get a puppy or a kitten when they were six to eight weeks old. And here in Germany, the law is actually that they have to be at least 12 weeks old, so it's usually 12 to 13 weeks. And that's kind of shocking that there should be such a difference. I mean, literally twice the age. Germany is definitely well known for tightly regulating things much more than in the very capitalism-driven United States. And I support that, <laughs> especially when it's a matter of health, um, creating behavioral problems through separation anxiety, premature separation, etc. I don't know. I guess I'm not asking a question, but just bringing it up because as an American, I know that it's very easy to think the American way is the only way. <laughs> it's a big country. There's a lot of people. It's a very prosperous country. But, uh, you know, when you're doing your homework, maybe look around a little more widely than just your country, even if you really like your country and you think <laughs> it generally has good ideas. I think capitalism is the key word here, and I'm not saying that that's American capitalism. It's just money in general, and that's the key reason why people want to give away puppies as early as they can, so that they wouldn't need to take care of them, and they would just sell more and more and make you know their their female dogs breed more often. The the point that you mentioned you know, about anxieties and so on, it's it's definitely valid, and it's very important for the puppy to experience everything at the right time. That certain number of weeks that he has to stay with his litter mates and his mom, it should not be shortened. There's, there's a term which is called socialization window, mm -hmm. and it's different from breed to breed. Generally, it lasts up to three months in dog's life. And that means that up to those three months, the dog needs to be exposed to people. It needs to get used to people as much as he can. It needs to be also exposed. Sorry for saying it. That's just a habit. I don't think that dogs are it. You mean he? He or, or she. Yeah. Again, I would like to have a gender-neutral term, but it, yeah, let's not get into that topic now. <laughs> so the dogs need to meet, for example, cats. If you are planning to have cats in the household, they need to meet any other animal, any other type of people that they will get exposure to in their later life, just so that they would learn that they will be bonding with other creatures, not only the puppies, not only their mom. So if you keep the dogs, you know, as they are in litter, in, in, in puppy mills, somewhere in cages for whatever number of months until they get sold, you're just damaging the dog. They will be fearful. They will be, you know, they can be fearful. I'm not saying they will be because there can be exceptions, but they will be prone to many more social and health issues if you will not do it right. So getting back to when to sell the dog, want to get the dog. Sure, earlier is nicer for you if you want a puppy because you get to experience the cuteness for a longer period of time, but you need to think about what's to come. 
You need to. Many breeders who are responsible breeders, they allow you to get into the contact with puppy earlier than you get him, which is great because a puppy already smells you. They experience so much through the nose, as we know. So you can start building your relationship even before you bring him home. It's not that it's going to be a hard cutoff point. You need to be flexible and you need to find the right breeder who helps you be flexible in building that relationship early on. Sounds good. It's kind of <laughs> one of the most important things, which is socialize, socialize, socialize. As we just spoke about the socialization window, that's a crucial thing. But it's also important to socialize for dogs of every age. And by socialize, I mean so much. It's socializing with their own species, finding the adequate play partners, not just dropping them into dog parks and letting them run off leash loose. We tried that in the beginning until we learned better. It, it's, it's nonsense. It's really nonsense. It sounds appealing. I can just let my dog roam and I don't have to do anything. I get to chat with other dog owners. No, you have to supervise how your dog is playing, if he is actually playing or if he's just running around in circles because he wants to avoid that other dog who's coming at him. So... You need to match the energy levels, and it's better to start in smaller groups, one-on-one. -on -one. Go to puppy classes. You're going to be supervised, you know, with, with experienced trainers. Don't just experiment on your own too much. It's really, really important. I have a medical question that, that I've had, and I'm sure other people have too, apropos of having a, a puppy and socializing them. Are there reasons to not let a puppy of a certain age come in contact with too many other dogs because they're more vulnerable physically to getting diseases or that sort of thing? And if so, like, when does that change? Because I always think of the the old saw about, you know, the nervous mother going to the, the pediatrician, the kid's doctor about their first kid and saying, oh, you know, I don't want to get any diseases. I'm sterilizing everything in the house. I'm keeping them out of the mud and everything. And the wise doctor saying, send them into the mud and have them play as much as possible there because she's going to build up immunity, build up antibodies. I think that's correct. I'm, I'm no doctor. Mm -hmm. well, so anyway, what, what about that in terms of socializing young dogs? The consult with your vet is crucial there. You have to have your dog adequately vaccinated. You have to give anti-worm medication, you know, anti-whatever, depending on where in the world you are. Because, again, each country has its own, well, maybe not each country, but each region has its own diseases, its own wildlife, its own you know, insects and so on. And dogs need to get vaccinated against that, against that risk. And sure, if you're coming into contact with many more, it, you know, think about COVID. <laughs> when there was a pandemic, we needed to limit, when, well, still there is a pandemic, but when it was at its peak, we needed to limit the social content because it spreads easier amongst people. So it's, it's in a way similar with dogs. If there is a certain and virus or infection, it can spread, of course, much easier if you, if you bring your dog into, into more contact with dogs, with our dogs. So there's always a balance to be kept. I wouldn't say isolate your dog all the time, but be aware of what kind of dogs your dog is get, getting into contact with. In what environment? It has to be a healthy environment. It has to be even maybe call it controlled environment. If it's in your backyard and if it's, you know, a dog of your friend and you know that that dog is well taken care of, healthy, vaccinated and so on, that wouldn't be too much issues. But if you're just going, you know, into a dog park, into a public dog park with a two-month-old puppy, well... <laughs> yeah, you make me think also because the dog park thing is... Such a big can of worms, no pun intended, because so many more people now live in cities and dog parks are the only green space and the only space in which the dogs get to run off leash available to city dwellers. 
But as you said, and as we experienced, it can really be tough and very stressful for the dog, as opposed to more controlled play situations that presupposes that you have some kind of fenced in area. Otherwise, I don't know, long leashes, that gets a bit tricky. But I guess ideally it would be one dog at a time, you know, a neighbor, a friend that you know, and you know that the dog's vaccinated and up to date and all that stuff. And you can build up to these dog park situations where it's a real free for all. <laughs> and you also, we've like we've noticed in the dog park we first went to in Berlin, for some reason, the younger dogs would come in the mornings, maybe little dog people or morning people. <laughs> I don't, anyway, what we noticed is late in the day, consistently, all the, the sort of the worst behaved dogs or the biggest, strongest, most um, energetic dogs would all come. I don't know if it had been kind of a silent agreement that got made. If people noticed, they'd show up and like all the Chihuahua owners would go running as soon as a bulldog entered the arena. And then uh, it just happened that way. So we stopped taking our dog there in the evenings because it would always be like huge Weimaraners, huge Ridgebacks, very uh, strong and very uh, heavy bulldogs. Dogs that just, she was not comfortable around. She's very intimidated by dogs who were simply bigger than her. It's interesting what you're saying. It made me think now, that's a little bit just like human behavior when you think about it. When are you going to see moms with babies strolling around the city? And when are you going to see, you know, teenagers hanging out together in public parks? Or, you know, elderly ladies going for walks or, or midday shopping? Mm. You know, it's kind of each group has its own time. So it's it may be us as a society proxying that behavior onto dogs that certain people just go out at certain times more often. Well, we live in, in challenging times, not just uh, for reasons of dog ownership, but because we're just such urban people now. So this whole off-leash running, sure, it's, it's, a, it's a big subject, but what is important to know here Mental stimulation is just as important as physical stimulation, if mm. not more important sometimes. Dogs have those wonderful, capable noses, not for nothing. And we can really use that for our benefit. The classic example, and that's a well-tested example even in our household, nose games, nose work, even simple exercises tire the dog so much more than just ball throwing or just running around in circles doing nothing because that nose works at such big capacity. It uses so much brain power that if you play nose games for 10 minutes, the dog will be just as tired as you would be throwing a ball for an hour. Yeah, I guess the way to think of it is the way that, I can't remember the vast percentage of our brain that's devoted to sight processing, the, you just shift that to the nose exactly. and the dog. They're not sight focused the way we are. Their primary sense is through the nose or both of their noses. Yeah. So sure, because th there's a lot of marketing issues when you think about it. The dogs are always portrayed as these super hyperactive running around and chasing the ball. Chasing the ball actually can be counterproductive to certain breeds. If it's a super high drive dog breed, they can get so focused and so impulsive when they see that ball and they just, you know, get into the zone, which raises the level of their adrenaline up to such heights that it's really hard to get out of that state. Yeah. And then they can keep projecting that energy onto, you know, other types of behaviors, which may be even unwanted behaviors. Yeah, like our, our dog, when she gets too hyped up, she starts nibbling on us. She kind of, you know, grabbing our, our arms and her, and her jaws and biting a little bit too hard. 
because she's just hyped up. You know? Yeah. She's never yeah. aggressive with us, but she's just, her adrenaline is going. Yeah. So that's a thing. It's better to be engaged in activities, train little tricks, little exercises, or do nose games. Try to use their brain and their nose in the right way. And that's going to be very helpful when you cannot guarantee them off leash running. We'll demonstrate those on, on some YouTube videos. And they're really easy to do. They're going to cost you <laughs> very little, no more than a couple of tea bags, for example. You can do them any time of year. You don't need a big space to run around, and the dogs absolutely love it. And it's insane how they pick up on these things quickly. It just blows my mind every time. I'm like, yeah. how the hell are you doing it's this? It's like nasal intelligence. And they're just <laughs> astonishing what they're capable of. Oh, God, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can keep going about many topics, but I think there's one last topic that I definitely want to mention. Yeah. We all love food, don't we? <laughs> I have to concur with that, yes. <laughs> So surely dogs do love it, but I think for me it was a quite a big revelation, and I think it it could be for many people that dogs are not only carnivores, they are omnivores, meaning that they are not only meat eaters, but they are all eaters. <laughs> this was this was a shock. I got to admit, again, unexamined beliefs you just get in childhood. It's like, oh, they're meat eaters. Turns out to be completely wrong. Well, I wouldn't say completely wrong. Meat or just right proteins have to be the basis of their diet, of their meals. But dogs need minerals. They need certain microelements. They need vitamins. And that they can get from veggies, from fruit, from berries. And if you are feeding them yourself, if, you know, if you're cooking meals. And again, you can cook your own meals. You can do barf. You can do uh, kibble. You can do canned food. Whatever. You, you have to explain barf because at least oh, in American right. English, oh, God. barf what is, is, is an unpleasant verb, especially <laughs> so, with regard to dogs. It's an acronym. It's I think it's biologically appropriate raw food. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the, the point is that it's balanced. It's balanced in the right way. And you shouldn't experiment on your own. You have to find the nutritionist. You have to, or at least, you know, do a super thorough research. And again, adjusted depending on your dog. So we feed our dog kibble for a simple reason. We wanted to try and go gradually towards maybe natural feeding, giving her cooked meals. And, you know, you, you need to do it very slowly, very gradually. Maybe first go to canned food, which is somewhere in between kibble and, and cooked home cooked meals. And by, I think kibble's a brand name, but she means True. just dry food. Dry, dry dog food, yeah. But it didn't work for her. She would have horrible stomach issue instantly, even if we would like maybe to do it differently. But you have to follow your dog's gut and learn what fits them. But dry dog food can be good. You just need to observe what's in the label. You have to be able to understand what's in the label, meaning if it's only E number, 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 50 ingredients and you know like two or three of them that's not going to be good it has to be actual meat fish whatever protein and then you know vegetable content fruit content micro element content not just labels of chemical compounds so it, it's the same goes for the canned dog food as well i don't know will i remember it off the top of my head but there's lists of foods which are not good for dogs want to help me maybe chocolate yeah, <laughs> that's the only one I know by heart, okay. uh, to be honest. Grapes. Grapes are not good, especially the little bones inside the grape. Seeds, yeah. Avocado bone. You can give avocado, but make sure that the dog is not nibbling on that bone. Not. All the garlicky and oniony 
the group of our garlics and onions. <laughs> I know not I shouldn't clump it that way, but everything that is in that family is not okay, good. I did know that one too. I just yeah. I coffee, put me on the spot. Coffee. <laughs> and here we remember Brian's brother's dog, Leo, and Anya. They both love coffee. Yeah. They're obsessed They'll with... They'll try and drink it out of your cup in the morning. It's really weird. Yeah. That's no good either. Well, the thing is also like with vegetables and fruit, it's better if the vegetables are cooked because it can lead to, you know, loose bowels and all if you give too many raw veggies. Generally, the safe ones are carrots, boiled carrots, boiled sweet potato, cucumber, especially in summer, it has a lot of water, so that helps with hydration and all, and so on. The dog will tell you what he likes and what works, what not. Our dog, for example, we tried giving her berries. And, and tomatoes. And tomatoes. Big and, reject. Oh, mushrooms. Mushrooms are also not good. Yeah. Don't give mushrooms. That information is out there. We can help with that as well. Yeah. Now we need some nice wrap-up. Again, like big difference in this between the States and Germany. In Germany, things are very regulated. But even if you do pass the exam here, which is tough, and you get the training, that still doesn't mean you're going to be a good dog trainer because dogs are really challenging and there are so many different kinds of behaviors. But if you love dogs, and again, as, as we said, if you like people enough to be willing to figure out how to train them because you kind of have to do those equally then you can really enjoy it. But it does take time. It, you have to be incredibly observant. And uh, it's hard when you're just kind of trying to socially bond yourself, like you've got a client and you're also trying to make them comfortable and read their body language and everything. But you do have to be incredibly focused on the dog and also observe what the client is usually unwittingly communicating to their dog. Yeah. So I guess if I had to say one or two things that I actually learned, and so let's just put it bluntly, I am not going to be a dog trainer anytime soon. That is not my intention. <laughs> <laughs> and I am left with the feeling that I know very little about dogs, that there's so many things to learn about them if you actually want to understand them. They are unique species. They are really unique species. So that you cannot really compare them to any other species on the planet. And I like people up to a certain level. <laughs> I like certain people up to a certain level, and I am such a dog freak that it makes me like people less. <laughs> because whatever now, if I see, in my opinion, not a valid behavior with dog, that just makes my blood boil. And by boil, I mean, I literally shouted at people when they try to do something in a wrong way with, with my dog, okay? I'm not yeah. I'm not going and screaming at people, what are you doing with your dog? No, you know, you've never done that, even though I know yet. you wanted to. Yet, yet, <laughs> but I did scream at people. I discouraged this. So anyways, I don't want to discourage people, people even more to listen to this, so. <laughs> <laughs> Time to wrap up. <laughs> so here it is. That was a lot of information. I hope we can uh, put a summary of this in the description for the episode. So that, you know, if you're impatient or just don't have the time to listen to all this chit-chat, you can get the points. Yeah, I will turn it maybe into a blog post and put it on the website, on Facebook and, and Instagram. At well, all. I hope it was useful and uh, fun to listen to. And I hope you're in, in enjoying dogs in some capacity in your life. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And we'll be working on the season two soon. Meow.